What the red shirts in South Africa are doing is precisely what the brown shirts did in the Weimar Republic. It is no stretch at all. That is how Hitler built his support. And this is how Julius Malema is building his support. And as Churchill said, people who will not learn from history are bound to repeat it. Hello there. I'm Peter Bruce, and this is the first of a new thing for me, Podcasts from the Edge, a play on the terrific and very funny autobiographical novel by the actress Carrie Fisher in her book. She's always just holding on to her sanity. In my podcast, I'm going to try and be true to what I often feel. That is that I haven't any idea about what is going on, and I know I'm not alone. A long article by no less a person than former President Thabo Mbeki appeared in the Sunday Times last weekend, and it was all about him asking President Sol Ramaphosa, please, for more detail on just about everything. Same for me. You don't need to know everything, but you need to know enough. And the way I do that is by talking to people who know more than I do. The person I'm going to start off this project with is arguably one of the best-known living South Africans, Helen Ziller. When the time comes, history will judge Helen Ziller far more kindly than the media and social media dole out to her today. She's made a formidable contribution to our politics um, as a journalist in Parliament, as Mayor of Cape Town, leader of the official opposition, Premier of the Western Cape, and now, again, as a senior leader in the Democratic Alliance, where she's chairperson of the federal executive. A generator of constant controversy herself, Zilla doesn't mind loud or even nasty argument. But it is in a relatively quiet and utterly focused way she returned to the party as federal chair last year after retiring completely from politics when her second term as Western Cape Premier expired. But she must now be measured, perhaps judged, but certainly listened to. Remember that while she was still Premier, she was effectively excluded from party affairs by former leader Musi Maimani after a series of tweets about the legacy of colonialism in Singapore. I'm going to ask her a lot of questions in this first podcast. But first off, Helen, what I want to know, and we're going to come to the news of the day now, but what I want to know first is what did you find after your short break away from politics when you got back to the office? Thank you very much for those warm words of introduction, Peter. I really appreciate them because it's very rare that I hear any warm words these days except in my family circle where fortunately that still happens. But um, what did I find? Look, I found a very different place from the place that I had left. I found an organization that had lost its moorings, that didn't have a lodestar and a compass, and that hadn't taken policy seriously. I think that Gwen and Gwenya was quite right when she said that. And of course, when there isn't clear direction from the top, everything unravels. And I found a lot of unraveling. And I found that a lot of the analysis in the review committee's report was spot on. That review committee did an excellent job. Ryan could see Tony Leon and Michel LaRue. They were spot on in their analysis. And that gave me a lot of guidelines as to how the leadership team needed to fix it. And you've gone, that's what you've gone about doing for the past well, almost a year now, right? Um, and 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 we'll get to the uh, recent um, policy conference or the recent elective conference that you had. But news that has broken today, um, we're obviously speaking on Tuesday, the 10th of uh, November, 
Uh, Ace Magashule is about to be served with a warrant for arrest in uh, connection with the asbestos case in the Free State, and he'll appear in court um, in Bloemfontein, I'm told, reliably, uh, later this week. What's your first reaction? Well, my first reaction is that, thank goodness, that something is happening. I'm delighted because Leona Kleinhans, who is one of our members of the provincial legislature in the Free State, has been pursuing ACE relentlessly since 2015, much shorter time than we were pursuing Jacob Zuma nationally on the spy tape issue and other issues. But Leona has been absolutely dogged and relentless in this. And she laid a charge with the police and the Hawks investigated it. And now they have issued a warrant for ACE Bakashvili's arrest. So, you know, good for Leona. And lots of the issues were really spelt out in the Gangster State book by Peter Louis Myberg. So people yeah. working together can get these kinds of results. Do you know the new leadership of the uh, NPA? Yes, well, I absolutely do. Hermione Cronier was uh, the SRC president at UCT when I was there. I can't quite remember what capacity I was there in, but I think I was director of communications and development at UCT at that point. You were in management at the time. Yes, I was at UCT management at the time. That's exactly right. That's where I was. And Hermione Cronier was the um, SRC president, as I recall. And yeah. she was a very, very thoughtful, um, hardworking woman. And I'm really pleased that she's where she is. I've got a lot of confidence in her. She's a strong woman. I don't yeah. know Shamila Batoy at all, but I do know Hermione Cronier. And I have yeah. a lot of respect for her. Yeah. And it's the, one gets the feeling that although these things are painfully slow, um, that 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 they will that they will simply proceed as fast as they can um, to bring charges against all of these um, uh, all of the people who were implicated in state capture, and not leave out the politicians, which is which has always been the fear. Well, of course, the fear has not only been that people would leave out the politicians, the fear was that they would be selective as to which politicians they would pick on. Because you yeah. must understand that the ANC is not only one criminal syndicate posing as a government, it is several overlapping criminal syndicates <laughs> posing as a government. Yeah. Yes, they're sort of mafia families who sort of come into the, come into the movie every, every now and again in different um, in different roles. Helen, in the next couple of days, you're going to get start getting the results of a huge number of by-elections. Um, uh, I'm not sure whether how many of them are provincial or, or, or even national. Certainly a lot of them will be, most of them will be local. All of which have been held up by the lockdown and COVID over the, over the past year. Do you, have in the, do, you have, do you have in your head how many candidates you're fielding uh, in the Wednesday, in the Wednesday's poll? Well, Super Wednesday, we're calling it. It is a very, yeah. very big day for everybody. Yeah. We are contesting 45 by-elections in one day. And as you know, yeah. Peter, by-elections only happen at local government level. At provincial yeah, and right. national level, we have a list system, so there are no by-elections yeah. in the list yeah. system. Yeah. But at local yeah. government in wards, we have by-elections. And the DA yeah. is contesting 45 on Super Wednesday. And how many of those are you, how many of those would be you be defending, and how many are you trying to wrest away from other parties? I should be able to tell you that offhand, but I can't. Yeah. Most okay. of them will be um, 
seats that we are likely defending or marginal seats, one or the yeah. other. Seats okay. that we only just lost previously or seats that we won previously yeah. or seats where we think that we can make significant progress yeah. and seats that we're testing out. So it's a, it's a range, it's a combination of seats that we are yeah. going to be fighting and obviously with a range of strategies. Interesting, because given that the fact that this is low, you know, this is a local poll, thank you for pointing that out. To what extent is it a, a bit of a toe in the water test for the, for the local government, uh, nationwide local government elections next year? And to what extent do you, will you see it, uh, whichever way it goes, as a, a mark of approval or disapproval for the changes you've been part of bringing about in the DA over the past year? Well, the one thing I can say is that if we had carried on as we were after the 29 election, the DA would have unraveled almost completely. Of that, I am totally convinced. And so we had to arrest that. We had to consolidate and we're in the process of consolidating. And I have learned that there are times in a political party's life for growth and there are other yeah. times for consolidation to prevent a complete reversal. And we're now in that period of consolidation. So I have absolutely no doubt, and it's difficult to prove the counterfactual, but if we continued on the path that we were, we would have unraveled almost completely. Yeah. So the question is, have we uh, arrested the decline? Hopefully we will have arrested the decline, but it's very easy to break a party down. It's extremely difficult to build a party up. And once you have lost the confidence of voters, it takes a tremendous amount of work to rebuild that confidence. And in the long haul, because I really do believe that the DA has the best recipe to create a prosperous society in South Africa, that will tell over time in results of elections. But as Tony Leon always says, it's the long obedience, you know? There's no shortcuts here. And I try to take a shortcut. Mm -hmm. And it is entirely my fault that I convinced the party to take some shortcuts. So I take full responsibility for that. So I hope yeah. that people will see that we are arresting the slide and consolidating to go for growth again. But uh, you won't be able to draw any real overall conclusions except election by election. So election by election, we would look, there are different circumstances in each ward. You've got situations where we're fielding very good candidates in some places, flag waivers in other places, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I think it's inevitable that we will lose some, definitely will. That's absolutely realistic. The question is how many and for what reason? Yes. You must have been pretty happy, I presume, with the outcome of the recent party elective conference that you held, um, it seemed to be sort of half virtual and half real or physical. Uh, you, you were re-elected um, as federal chair, uh, federal executive chair. John Steenhuisen, who is interim uh, leader, was, was elected. Will it settle the party, do you think? I do think so. I think it's settled the party already very substantially. And the lovely thing is the DA is the only party in South Africa where people across all boundaries of race, religion, etc. Vote for the people that they think will be best in the jobs that are up for election. And that is an extraordinary thing. And being the only party that actually does that, and we're black and white and colored and whatever, 
Indian and different religions vote together or against, but not on the basis of their biology, but on the basis of the merit of candidates is a unique and wonderful thing that should be celebrated. When you say that the party is definitely settled, how can you tell? I can just tell by the way things work. You know, yeah. the systems are buzzing again, and that's critical. I mean, the systems were in a very, very bad way when um, I came into that position. What's different about the DA today than, let's say, you know, a, a week before the last general election last year? In the, what's different well, about the DA 18 months ago? Well, we're no longer a blue wobbly jelly, not knowing where we stand on any issue and working it out on the basis of the Twitter botnet. That's what's different. But, uh, all right, let me ask the question another way. What's different about you? You talked about taking short, having taken shortcuts. How have you changed? Well, the way I've changed is to understand the politics of the long haul a lot better, to understand the politics of the long obedience. I understand that it doesn't help winning if you don't offer an alternative and that that alternative must be clear and it must be rooted in post-enlightenment ideals and the economic strategies that have got billions of people out of poverty across the world. And that even if people don't buy into those values and policies now, ultimately, over time, one can make progress, although it is a lot slower than one would have hoped. Under Jacob Zuma, I always used to argue that we were in a race against time. And I was terrified that South Africa was going to crash out um, before the DA had a critical mass. And that's why I was driving so hard to ensure that the DA did develop the critical mass and become a party of government. And we did become a party of government and we broke out of the Western Cape on the momentum that we'd built up. I stepped down in 2015 and I think Musi took over and really added to that momentum. But it shows that you don't choose leaders from central casting. There's yeah. so much that goes into political leadership that many people yeah. outside can't see, and certainly the commentariat in newspapers don't begin to understand. They think it's a yeah. face on a telephone pole on a poster. They have no idea how complex the world of political leadership is and how rare it is to find people who can do it. As Winston Churchill used to say, you know, it gets it gets difficult when everything is moving all, all at the same time. Well, there's a million moving parts, yes. Yeah. 2020 been a big year. Do you reckon we got COVID right? Are you asking me my personal opinion? Yeah. Well, my personal opinion is a little different from the party's opinion, but mm. it's much closer now than it was at the beginning. We all supported the first three weeks of lockdown for one reason, and that was to get our health system ready for what we anticipated would be a massive tsunami of cases going to our hospitals. Yeah. And the Western Cape certainly used that time brilliantly and really did, you know, develop field hospitals, the, the largest field hospital in Africa built that I'm aware of at the Good Hope, at the, uh, at the um, major conference center. It was really extraordinary yeah. what the Western Cape managed to do. As far as I know, it was never filled. No, it was never filled. Never yeah. filled fully, but it was it was fantastic that all the facilities were there. Yeah. Now, and then lots of people used it. Lots and lots of people used it. But yeah. after the first three weeks of lockdown, 
we needed to open our economy again, make mask wearing mandatory, look after people with comorbidities, because by then it was already becoming clear from the international experience that people really at risk were those with comorbidities, high blood pressure, uh, diabetes, obesity, cancer, those sorts of things, ensure that we really protect those people and facilitated their locking themselves down, but letting the rest of society get on with it so that we did not destroy the economy. Our biggest problem is unemployment. We started COVID with 10, uh, 10 million people unemployed. We now know how, how the 3.4 million people, I think, have been added to the unemployment queue. So over 13 million people unemployed for a sickness which has a recovery rate of over 99%. Now, I'm not for one moment minimizing the loss that people feel when they lose a loved one, not for a moment. It is terrible and any preventable death is one too many. But more people are going to die of unemployment and the consequences of lockdown, I believe, than will have died from COVID. But Helen, what you're saying is that you support the Great Barrington Declaration, right? What I'm saying is I support the Swedish model. The one big okay. mistake of the Swedish model was that they did not uh, lock down their care homes. Now, the care homes are literally almost like hospices in Sweden, where people go yeah. when they're very ill and very near death. And those people are near death anyway. And very old people are much more susceptible, as we know. Although my husband, who's 77, which is not very old, my husband, who's 77, got COVID, and we just discovered by accident. We didn't even know. It was total coincidence that he had to go for a test because he yeah. had to go somewhere that required him to have a test. And they said, you're COVID positive. And I also had it very near the beginning. And I didn't even yeah. have so much as a runny nose. Yeah. And 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 do you think um, we're in any danger now? If you, you know, looking at looking at the way it's going um, uh, in, in the UK and on the continent in Europe, um, their second wave is being really, really ferocious in terms of people having to go to hospital. Do you think that we run the risk of being of of, of, a, of a second wave forcing stricter controls back here? Would you support making the wearing of masks uh, obligatory? You know, I'm I'm very wary, Peter, about allowing the state to tell people what to do, but that is a far lesser infringement on people's rights than curfews, than closing down the economy, than making it a crime to challenge basic assumptions around COVID, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. My great worry is that the Disaster Management Act is a totalitarian act, frankly. It puts almost all the power in Nkosazana Dlamini Zuma's hands as the Minister for Cogta, and it enables her to issue decrees bypassing Parliament and it enables her to decide when we are going to get out of this lockdown, if ever. There's a constitutional amendment the DA could push, no? Well, we, um, we, we take this to the constitutional court, but we have to move up yeah. through the constitutional system. Yeah. But it's quite extraordinary, this act. It is quite extraordinary. It is worse than the State of Emergency Act, this one. Yeah. And yeah, it is no, a very, very dangerous act. And now what the, what the ANC are doing is that they're replicating that model at district, that's provincial level, at district level, and local level with ward-based war rooms. So we must be very, very careful that the so-called second wave doesn't just provide the ANC an excuse to con continue centralizing control, 
continue yeah. using cronies to dispense yeah. resources and then employ ANC cadres in ward-based war rooms to make sure they win the election. Yeah. Have, have no doubt that this centralization of power led to the corruption that we saw with the um, protective clothing tenders, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. PPE yeah. and all of that, the yeah, centralization PPE. of control is really, really dangerous yeah. and oppose it with everything we have. Helen, can I, I want to come back, sorry, uh, to jump uh, back and forth, just back to the back to the Congress. Um, and I want to talk about Mbali and Thule's role for a moment. She was surely right, and not merely within her rights, to challenge John Steenhuisen, don't you think? Of course, everyone's within their rights to challenge someone for an election. I mean, we don't like coronations in the DA. Anybody can stand for an election. I often did and lost. I mean, yeah, we don't want coronations in the DA. We want choice. What was your view of her campaign or what was your view of the way she mounted her challenge? For instance, she wanted him to, wanted him to debate things in public and, and the presiding officers wouldn't wouldn't allow them to debate anything public. I presume, by the way, that you are one of the presiding officers. No, I'm definitely not. The presiding oh, really? officer, yeah. No, no, definitely not. The DA has a very, very strict system and a very good system. We choose from our brightest and our best who are totally independent and on there there to adjudicate issues of the election. And I can't interfere with them whatsoever. They are as independent as a judiciary should be in any system. What was, the, what was the point, though, of not allowing them to debate? Well, they did debate. We had a whole series of debates. If you take an American election, and we're all, I'm sure, very relieved at the result of, of that one, even though it's going to be complicated um, in, the, in the weeks ahead. But, I mean, you know, the, the candidates um, uh, for, for the presidency uh, of any one party would have a, debates, a number of debates over a couple of months between themselves and people would fall away. And, and quite frankly, if you're the leader of a party in South Africa, you are the presidential candidate in South Africa. Why, why could we not know more about that debate, that, that um, uh, dynamic between, say, Mbali and Tuli and John Steenhays? It would have been fascinating. What we do know about the South African scene is that we need to focus on the interests of voters and not have our internal contestations publicly. That makes it look as if we're only interested in positioning internally and that we are so busy talking about each other that we are forgetting about focusing on what the voters want. But Helen, would that mean that you don't like the American system in that? In that thing? I don't in like the American way. system at all. I don't like the American system at all. Okay. I mean, all right. when you have six or seven Democratic Party candidates all tearing each other's guts out, all yeah. decimating each other, it may work in an electorate that is used to that kind of thing as the Americans are, but it seems to me an unbelievably short-sighted notion to badmouth your colleagues from your own party, and that's exactly how it's interpreted, mm. and to be internal squabbling on public platforms when indeed you should be having those debates with your opponents yeah. in other parties. So it makes yeah. all kinds of sense for, for example, Cyril Ramaphosa 
to have debates with a leader of the opposition. And in this case, it's John Steenhuisen, obviously. Those kinds yeah. of debates out there because that is the electorate. The public yeah. are the electorate. In the DA, yeah. our Congress delegates are the electorate. And the last thing we want to get up there and say, okay, you claim X and Y in your manifesto, but you've never done X and Y, and you've only done Q. And the, what does it help having that kind of debate in the general population as a whole? I mean, yeah. these are tough, tough debates. We have them internally. And I happen to agree with the presiding officer's views, although I had absolutely nothing to do with them. It was sent straight to the presiding officer and said, there's this request, you adjudicate it. We had two very good and very experienced presiding officers, Greg Crumbach and Desiree van der Valt, and they came to that particular conclusion. The debates about an electoral choice are for the electorate that is going to be making that choice. And that seems to be very, very rational indeed. We don't want to be pulling our guts out I on just, public just, platforms when people have so many serious issues to worry about. What about Mbali's future in the party? I mean, there's a, there are people who argue, and I have, and I saw Daniel Silk did in the Sunday Times, much more uh, sympathetic um, observer of the DA than I can, I have been, but also suggesting that some way be find, found by you and the new leadership to draw her into the party, to make her, you know, uh, yeah, to draw her some, somehow into, in, into the leadership of the party, that she's an asset, not a liability. Well, no one says that anyone who contests an election is a liability. We're not no. the ANC. We're not the ANC that if you lose an election, you're cast into the wilderness. Yeah. I mean, the bottom line is that the only positions that John Steenhuisen has in his gift is the shadow cabinet. Mm. Mbali is not a member of parliament. She's a member of the provincial legislature. She can contest any election she likes. She can stand for any position she likes. She's our former youth leader. There's no way that people are marginalized in the DA because they contest elections. I mean, I once contested for the chair of the Western Cape. I lost miserably. I was never marginalized as a result. Yeah. He can take positions. But in it would be nice then if John invited her to come sit on his front bench with him. I mean, there must be a way to get, to get somebody into Parliament if you want them to be there. Well, the question is, does she want to be there? She stood for the provincial yeah. legislature. Yeah. And the question is, you know, which other women are there? The simple fact that you contested somebody doesn't mean that you're outcast at all, but it doesn't mean you get rapid promotion either. No, no, no. But having just watched her, when I was impressed, and I think quite a few other people were impressed, even though they might have, you know, gone for John as the sort of um, steady hand and all of that. Nonetheless, she offered something, it seemed to me, uh, for the DA, that it would be sort of a little blind of the party to walk away from without making sure she you know, it gets brought along somehow. The important a... thing is that no one is walking away. Yeah. Mbali's not walking away. The DA is not yeah. walking away. Yeah. Mbali's in her early 30s. And by oh. any reckoning, she's made fantastic progress in the DA. I only came into politics when I was 47 or 48. When I was 30, there was no way I would ever have thought of becoming a member of a provincial legislature or parliament. So she's yeah. made fantastic progress. And if she contests elections and gets a compelling offer and has 
been weighed in her previous positions and found to have done excellent work, then she will chart her course, yeah. as we all do. It's a, you know, I mean, you, 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 you've got obviously a colour issue swirling around you, um, partly because of the policy positions that you've taken over the past couple of months. Um, and it would just seem to be a pity to me um, to allow uh, a black woman of that sort of quality or black candidate or politician or member of that quality uh, to slip through your fingers. But let's presume that that's not, you know, there's no intent it's not to do that. to slip through anybody's yeah. fingers. But you see, the, the very question, Peter, if you don't mind me saying so, is patronizing. It's as yeah. if Mbali's future depends on what somebody else is going to do to nurture her, to put her on a front bench, to yeah. give us cotton wool treatment. She doesn't want cotton wool yeah. treatment and she doesn't deserve cotton wool treatment. None, none of us yeah. do. You know, the yeah. bottom line is this, the DA is the only party in South Africa that, that is of yeah. any significance at all, that has an inclusive and non-racial leadership. And for that, yeah. we get it every day. Nobody yeah. looks at the leadership of the ANC, the top six, and weighs them according yeah. to diversity. No one does that to the EFF. Yeah. No one does that to the Freedom Front Plus. Why should yeah, they do that to the DA? And if they did, they would yeah. find that our chairperson yeah. is a black person. Our leader yeah. is white. Our first deputy chairperson is a black woman. And so I can yeah. go on. Nonetheless, my deputy, nonetheless. My deputy is a black man. Yeah. So, but it's still about branding, right? And there's a, there's a, there's an issue about branding on the, of, of the DA and it's, it's wobbly and it's not clear yet. And you've only just had the election. So maybe it'll become clearer, but take, take what's been happening, happening in Brackenfell in the past couple of days where, mm -hmm. um, um, uh, where I think the leader of the party in the Western Cape, Bongenkosi um, uh, Matikizela, uh, puts out a statement and he compares the EFF at the school uh, to the Nazi brown shirts. And it just seems to me to be such a stretch. Now, I know a lot of people compare the EFF to the Nazis, but, you know, it, it's in this particular case, that's not what they were doing. They weren't burning books or destroying things or throwing stones at anybody. Um, and, okay, can I, can I just look at that? One second. I just want to quote one person. The, the, the Financial Times correspondent in South Africa. Joseph Cotswold. Oh, my goodness me. No one takes Joseph Cotswold seriously. So, so Joseph tweets today, on the anniversary of Kristallnacht, no less, for South Africa's main opposition party to cheapen the memory of Nazi persecution like this does show how far into the political wilderness it has gone. Um, it's you, there is a branding problem there. You raise money in in the UK. I'm glad you asked me that question because it's a very important question. I know quite a lot about Kristallnacht because on that night, the first of my relatives who were murdered in the Holocaust, and there were many, was murdered. He was a restaurateur and he was murdered outside his business. And my grandfather on my mother's side, that was on my father's side, on my mother's side had their house totally smashed, his cello smashed, and he was arrested and taken to jail. And I know what subsequently happened, the result of which is that I'm in South Africa. But if you go back to before Kristallnacht, and you go back to the Weimar Republic between 1929 and 1934, when Hitler was still a 6% party, how he built his power was having gangs of brown-shirted people 
going around and interfering in people's private lives. And they would go and break up meetings and terrorize uh, individual business owners, etc., etc. Now look what's happened over the last couple of weeks once with the EFF. They've trashed H&M stores for a t-shirt that they considered offensive. They burnt click shops to the ground for a hair advertisement that they consider offensive. They have gone and terrorized individual people in all kinds of ways, let alone steal the savings of the poor and other things. Now they, there is a private party of 42 learners of a school which has 254 matric learners. And they can't have a matric dance, so 42 friends in a friendship circle have their own private function, fully compliant with COVID, etc. And the EFF now decides to attack a school while kids are writing matric and their exams because of a private party's guest list that had nothing to do with the school. Since when does a political party get to say who you can have on a guest list for your own private function? And since when have, for example, Julius Malema's events and private parties been subject to a racial audit. What the red shirts in South Africa are doing is precisely what the brown shirts did in the Weimar Republic. It is no stretch at all. That is how Hitler built his support. And this is how Julius Malema is building his support. And as Churchill said, people who will not learn from history are bound to repeat it. And it's time that Joseph Cottrell got off Twitter for five minutes and actually read some history. In terms of elections and coalitions, um, what would you rule out completely? You know, you, you've just been describing how the EFF are Nazis in the making. Um, but not two years ago, your own party was in coalition with them in governments around the country. We were not in well, coalition. Well, you we were, were in government. In you we were in government, not with them, but we relied on their support at critical moments. Well, and the, okay, well, the historical, record, the historical yeah. record will show that I was dead opposed to it yeah. and argued very strongly yeah. against it, which yeah. was the point yeah. at which I was dropped off the federal executive. Yeah. Your, your, your predecessor, James Self, in your current job, refused mm. to react coalitions with the EFF while he was in that job. Do you... If you're asking me, do I rule out coalitions with the EFF? I would yes. say that I personally do rule out coalitions with the EFF. What about German Mishaba? But it's, it's, it's not my final say. I understand. No, I get that. I understand that. What about Herman Mishaba? We'll decide on a case-by-case -case basis, depending on whether we think we can govern well. If you can't govern well, there's no point in being in government. That's why voters must vote for a strong DA so we can govern well. Does the DA have an economic policy, or does it simply have an economic values policy? What was the paper that Gwen and Gwenya brought out? I think it was in September. Um, uh, it, was, it was long, it was detailed, but it didn't speak to the, to the economy as, it, as we face it now, with so many unemployed, so much debt, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What is, where, where does the DA's economic policy rest at the moment? 
What Gwen brought out was not an economic values policy, it was an economic justice policy, okay. which looked at how we could get sustainable development going in South Africa, working on the sustainable development goals of the United Nations, which is a very unique and a very good approach, which looks at all the aspects that are needed to get into economic growth and to get yeah. into a job-creating cycle. But you are right, an economic justice policy to deal with the terrible legacy of 26 years of ANC rule in which race has been used to enrich a tiny politically connected elite and push more and more people into the unemployment queue and into poverty and create massive disinvestment because of property insecurity, policy insecurity and other things that we reverse that. But you are right, this morning I was starting to look through a very uh, clear draft of our economic policy, the two are different things. Now that you've got your values out there, you need to get the policies to fit the values. Correct, correct. You're going into an election next year without an economic mm -hmm. policy. We're not going into an election next year without an economic policy. We will have a superb economic policy. One when thing that Gwen was, Gwen was absolutely right about when she, um, when she left the DA, was that the DA wasn't taking policy seriously. She was absolutely right about that. And certainly we had an economic policy when I was the leader of this party. And I remember once when you were the editor of the Business Day and Tim Harris was our finance spokesperson, we'd released our economic policy on that day. And on that very day that it was reported in your own newspaper, you complained that we don't have an economic policy. So we have in the past had an economic policy and we will have one again in the very near future. But we've got our what value source. Yeah, um, this year. Well, I've, no. I've got the drop with me. I'm not quite sure it's, it's good to release a policy in December, the silly season, yeah. but it will be very early next year. Helen, um, thank you. Listen, I'm going to stop you there. And thank you very, very much for talking to me. I really appreciate the effort you made. I know you're busy. I know you've got an election. You've just been in Pochester. Thank you very much for talking to, to me. And I hope we can do this again. It's such a very great pleasure and thank you very much, Peter, and it was really lovely to talk to you again. Thanks very much for joining me. I enjoyed that and I hope that you did too. I'll be doing podcasts from The Edge every week from now on uh, as I try and really find out what on earth is going on around me. This is a very complicated country. I need for my own sanity and I hope yours too. Uh, to speak to people who know what they're talking about, about their specialities. Once again, thanks for being with us today and see you soon.